0: All right, go ahead and have a seat. How is everybody doing today? Doing all right? Good, good. Everybody got an extra hour of sleep, right? Good. So we're doing extra good. All right, if you have a Bible, grab it and make your way to 2 Samuel. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black card back one around you, page 255 in there. Uh, we've been in this series through First and Second Samuel since... The summer, and if you've uh, been here, or if you've read First Samuel and moving into Second Samuel, you will notice that it's a bit of a crazy story. You've got all kinds of of things going on. It's just chock full of the bizarre, uh, the violent, and the risque. Uh, so as you have read through, you know we've seen people get hacked to pieces. We've seen ghosts show up and speak. Uh, There's sexual exploits. We'll even see some of that today and in the weeks to come as well. There's deadly consequences of these. And as we come to 2 Samuel uh, chapters 2 through 5 today, this just continues. We'll have a battle where hundreds of people die. We've got a dude who's going to get killed by the back end of a spear uh, we're going to have betrayal, we're going to have murder, we're going to have political intrigue, we're going to have assassinations, we're going to have a coronation, and then to top it all off, next week, David will dance naked. So it is a bit of a crazy story. And the application will be not to do likewise. We'll have a different application out of that. But it's a crazy story. But the the thing, especially today, we're going to look at it in the midst of all of this Madness, really, is that God is still on His throne. He's still faithful forever. He's still sovereign over us. He's still accomplishing His purposes. He's still accomplishing His will. It can't be stayed. It can't be thwarted. And He even does so through madness and craziness and sin. Not as the author. God is never the author of sin, ever. But He's bigger than it. And so he can bend it to his will. And he does. He's bigger than sin. He's bigger than situations. And he bends all of them to his will. And he'll work good out of deception. He'll work good out of scheming. He'll work good out of wickedness. Because he's God. That is a simple but profound statement. He is God, Almighty. And so, what's going on when we come to Second Samuel chapter two is King Saul is dead. All right, if you've been following along or not, the nation of Israel they had come out of the Promised Land. They'd come out of. Egypt, they come into the promised land, they've got some judges, then they're saying, We want a king like all the other nations. And God gives them one in judgment because they are rejecting God, so He gives them Saul. Saul is just like a king of all the other nations, he has no regard for God, and so it goes bad for them. And God appoints David, he will be uh, the next king, and he's a king that I'm choosing, he's a king after my own heart. He's the kind of king I want, and he's going to be a king that points forward to Christ. And so King Saul chapter 2 now is dead. David is coming to take the throne. He's going to be the king of Israel. God's accomplishing the promise that he's made. And as we are come to find out in two weeks in particular, David's kingdom is so vital to the plan of God because, for one, it is through him that the Messiah will come. And then secondly... The kingdom that will be established under David is a foreshadow of the kingdom that is to come. When Jesus returns, he's already come once, when he returns in his second coming and there is no more sin, there is no more sorrow, as Steve was praying, all things are made new, what we long for. And David's kingdom was to serve as a imperfect, but still picture of that And so that's what's at stake in this section is, is David David going to become the king? Is God going to keep his promise? Saul is dead. Is this going to happen? And again, what we're going to see is that God does accomplish his plan, regardless of resistance against it. He accomplishes it, period. And so that's the overarching main point of this section. And it has good news implications for us massively good news implications for us that God is in control and that he accomplishes his will. But before we get to that, let's get into the story. So it's four chapters. I'm not going to read them all. We will read some. I'll paraphrase some. We'll go through the whole story. I'll make some comments as we go. And then once we get through the whole story, we'll pull out kind of two main points. Those are the blanks that are in your notes in the bulletin in front of you. But let's get to it. Chapter 2. Again, this is on page 255, starting in verse one. After this, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And so again, Saul's dead. David's been hanging out in, uh, with the Philistines to stay away from Saul. Not a good idea, but he did it. The Bible, a lot of times, describes for us what's going on, not prescribes it sometimes. They're just telling us, hey, this is real. This is what's happening. David didn't. He was not faithful in that, in Philistine. But now he's coming out and he's saying, hey, should, is it time for me to go back to Judah, at least? And the Lord said to him, go up. David said, to which shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. So David went up there with his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of, Car- of Carmel. And we'll talk more about the wickedness of polygamy. But I mean, already he's in this. He had another wife named Michal, who was taken away from him. Earlier, he's got these two wives wrong, but again, this is life. This is real life. He was in sexual sin. Verse three, and David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. Thousands of people migrating from Ziklag to Hebron, and the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And so David goes to Hebron. All right. A city that's about 19 miles southeast of Jerusalem, sitting at about an elevation of 3,000 feet. But what's important about Hebron, if it's ringing a bell, for those of you who've read the Old Testament, it's ringing a bell because it's the city of Abraham. This is where Abraham settled. This is where he made an altar to the Lord. This is where the Lord appeared to him in three men saying, hey, Sarah's going to have a son And it's the only piece of the land, of the promised land, that Abraham actually possessed in his lifetime. It's where he's buried, it's where Sarah's buried, it's where Jacob's buried, it's where Rebecca's buried, it's where Leah's buried, it's where Isaac's buried. And so David's going up to Hebron is not just a coincidental kind of side note. What's happening here is God is intentionally linking David's story to Abraham's story. That it's all one story. The Bible's not disconnected. It's all one story. It's a story of creation and of fall and of redemption and of restoration. And it's all about the kingdom. So you got Adam and Eve and you have a kingdom, uh, you know, this kind of prophesied, this kind of, you know, envisioned. And then you see Abraham and and a promise and you see David on down to Jesus' first coming. The kingdom's at hand to Jesus' second coming and the kingdom fully consummated. So this one big story, and he's very much connecting it. The author is here connecting David to Abraham. But at the beginning here, he's only the king of Judah. He's not yet the king over all of Israel. And here's why. Skip down to verse 8. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months." And so let's introduce some names here. We're going to need to n- know some characters. The first two that we see here are Abner and ish And then we're going to get a guy here in just a little bit named Joab and his brothers. All important to kind of get our arms around these guys, know who they are, so that we kind of understand this story. And so Abner was the commander of Saul's army. He's also Saul's first cousin. Their dads were brothers. And so he's been with Saul throughout the entire time of Saul's kingdom. So he was there the day that they both watched, watched with astonishment as David slayed Goliath. Abner was there. He's the one who brought David to Saul. He was there when David used to share Saul's table. He was there when David married Michal, Saul's daughter in law, and, and, and became Saul's daughter, and therefore he became Saul's son in law. And so Abner knows David, he's familiar with David. And so when Saul was trying to kill David and David was on the run, Abner was there. When David kept defeating the forces of Saul but refusing to kill Saul, Abner saw that. It was Abner who was suffering those defeats. And he was there when David humiliated him and Saul by sneaking into camp and taking Saul's spear and jar of water. And then the big one, listen, to, to remember this one. He was there. When Saul himself acknowledged David's own rightfulness, rightful claim to the throne. Saul himself in 1 Samuel 24 and 1 Samuel 26 proclaimed, I know that you shall surely be king and the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Saul said that. Abner was standing there. He heard that. He knows that to be true. He knows it. And yet here he's anointing ish to be the king of Israel. So he knows this. He's just unwilling to accept it. Friends, folks are hardly ever eager to receive the kingdom of God. And so the world pushes back just as Abner did here. And as I was studying this this week, I was thinking to myself, Man, Abner is absolutely foolish because, I mean, he's heard God talk. He's heard through the mouth of Saul that David is to be the king. Like, he knows that. There's no ambiguity about this. This isn't just like a hunch. He knows this. He's heard with his own ears that David has been anointed to be the king. And so he knows all this. And so it's just foolish. It's just so silly knowing all that God has said to go out and fight against it. But is that not what we do all the time? We know what God said. It's not a hunch. We, we know it. We can read it. We know what God said. And yet we push back against it. We fight back against it. No, I don't want that. And so let's learn from Abner here. Understand that like Abner, it is possible to know the truth... And not embrace it. It is possible to quote the truth. But not submit your life to it. It is possible to hold on to the truth. Yet assault it at the same time. And that's why being a Christian. Is not based just upon being able to regurgitate some words. You also have to believe the truth that you regurgitate. And friends, that belief is proved out by how you live your life. Do you strive to walk in humility before the Lord, stumbling forward like David so often does, because we sin, we still sin, we're still in this world, in this broken world. We're still going to stumble, we're still going to fall. But do you try to stumble forward? And when you do fall, do you repent and turn back to God? Or... Do you set yourself up against God? I know what you said, just like Abner, but I don't care. I want this other thing and I'm going to go after this other thing. Friends, God is wise and gracious. And it is eternal foolishness to set yourself against him. And so if that's you. Repent. Repent. Trust Christ. He will forgive you. But you must turn. And so trust Christ. If you'd like to talk a little bit more about that, I'd love to chat with you after the service this morning, or any of the elders, or someone next to you, even share the gospel with you and talk with you about that, if you have any questions. But that's what Abner does here by making Saul's only surviving son king over Israel. All the other ones have died. And so Abner, I mean, and, and what Abner's doing really is he's working a game for himself. And he's using ish as a pawn in his game. And the name ish literally means man of shame. And he's just a pawn. And so after he makes ish king, he takes an army and he starts marching down towards Hebron. And there's where we meet David's commander, a guy named Joab. Joab's got two brothers, Abishai and Asahel. And they are the nephews of David, all right? And their sisters, I'm going to call her Z because I tried so much this week to pronounce her name correctly and I could never get it. Their, their mom is Z and that's David's sister. And so these are his nephews. And so Abner, in a move of aggression, marches south and now Joab marches north to meet him. They meet up at a pool of Gibeon and like two guys that are trying to size one another up then flexing in front of one another a little bit. Abner's like, hey, let's pick 12 men and let's let them fight and see who comes out on top. And so they do that. Those 24 men go to fight. They kill each other and the battle breaks out between two sides. Joab's army is winning. And so Abner starts fleeing and it turns from like a, a gladiator contest into a cross-country race. And so Abner's running. And you got verse 18. Here's what it says about Asahel. And the three sons of Z were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Now Asahel was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle. And Asahel pursued Abner, and as he went, he turned neither to the right nor to the left from following Abner. And so long story short, Abner keeps crying out, stop chasing me, stop chasing me, I, I'm going to have to kill you, I don't want to kill you, stop chasing me. Stop, I'm going to have to kill you, I really don't want to, please stop. A little bit later, you've got to stop, or I'm going to have to kill you, I'm going to have to kill you, I'm going to have to kill you. But Asahel wants glory, so he refuses to stop, verse 23 But he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear so that the spear came out his back. And he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. And so from that day on, there is bad blood between Joab and Abner. Now hang on to that. Okay? and We're going to try to connect all these stories that are going together. Because, what's again, big picture, what's happening is David is becoming king. And here we have Abner fighting against it. And in chapter 3, we're going to have David making some horrible mistakes and in a lot of ways kind of fighting in it, against it as well. Because, like we talked about, he's already gotten into the sin of polygamy. But as you get into chapter 3, you see that he's now like taking his sexual cues from culture and not from scripture, he's gotten just straight up into sexual politics where you take concubines and you take wives in order to make treaties with other people. You're just cementing alliances. And so just as an aside, just because culture accepts and even expects certain sexual behaviors doesn't make those right. It didn't make it right for David, and it doesn't make it right in our lives either, whether that's premarital sex, extramarital sex, pornography, homosexuality. Just because culture says it's okay doesn't mean that the Bible does. Polygamy's not right, these others aren't either. But back to the ranch God is making David king. And he's doing so for his purposes to pave the way for the Messiah and to foreshadow the coming kingdom of Jesus. And so God is doing this, all right? But look what's happening. Abner's fighting against it. David, in a mixture of faithfulness and folly, is even fighting against it a little bit. And we're about to see Joab wage war against it as well. Because what happens in the rest of chapter 3 is Abner starts sleeping with one of ish concubines, which is tantamount to claiming the throne. And so Ishbosheth comes to Abner. He's like, "What the heck? That's my concubine. What are you doing?" And Abner doesn't deny the charge, but he's furious with Ishbosheth because he's like, "I'm the guy who made you who you are. If it wasn't for me, you wouldn't be king. You owe me. You don't. You can't talk to me like this. But since you are fine, I'm going to go to David's side. David will take me, and we'll see how that goes for you then." And so that's what Abner does. He switches allegiances. But it's not because like, he suddenly wants to obey God and do what God has said. And he knows what God has said about David. But it's because it works best for him. He is self-serving. He only turns to David when it suited him to do so. And so what about you? Are you a crisis-only Christian? Only turning to the Son of David when it's good for you? Well, on the one hand, that's great, because it is good for you, always. But sometimes being a Christian means taking some shots, turning the other cheek, Do You walk in faithfulness when it's hard as well as when it's easy. Sometimes it is hard. And so Abner's scheming. He's going to start, you know, bringing people to he's going to start working truly in sincerity to bring the rest of Israel to David to be king over all of them. He's truly with sincerity doing that. It's just his motivation is all off. And so he starts scheming, he starts working. But again, look look behind the scenes now. And how God's working. We talk about it all the time, like that old school loom where we live underneath tangled knots, dead ends, nastiness, and mess. But on top of the loom, where only God can see, He's weaving something together. That's what's happening here. It's what's happening cosmically across all of eternity. From the beginning of our world till Christ comes again. And it's what's happening personally in each of your lives. All you can see sometimes are the mangled nasty dead ends and strings. But that's because we are finite and we live down here. But God can see above it. Now God lives in both places. He's with you down here and he's up here. But he can see, he knows what he's doing and he's working all things together, Romans 8, 28, for those who love the Lord. He's working them for good. And so God's on the move here, even through the scheming, even through the craziness, he's still working. I'm trying to like summarize, if I read it and try to explain it, we'd be here for hours. So if I'm going fast, I'm sorry. And Some of you are like, you're going slow, pick it up. And I'm sorry for that too. But Abner meets David. He says, I'm going to join you. I'm going to get everybody to recognize you as the king. Again, not because he's an awesome guy, but because he's self-serving. He's looking out for himself. And David's like, all right, that sounds good. And so just as Abner starts to leave, Joab shows up. And like Taylor Swift said, they got bad blood. And so they're going to get into it. And so to make a long story short, first Joab chews David out. And he's like, what are you doing? You are crazy. He's just coming here to deceive you. And you've been deceived. You are foolish. You let that guy deceive you. And then Joab goes out. And actually, he's the one who deceives David. Because he goes behind David's back. And he goes and he finds Abner. He says, hey, Abner, we need to talk. Brings him to the aside, And then he murders him. Stabs him through the stomach straight up murder like the bad blood that existed abner had killed asahel in battle but here joab murders abner that's the major difference and so david curses joab this is not what david wanted this was done behind david's back david wanted to see the kingdoms come together peacefully but joab's actions are going to make that more difficult and so we got these battles. We've got betrayal. We have escapades, like sexual exploits. We have murder. I told you this section was crazy, but we're not done yet because we get into chapter 4 and we've got an assassination of King Ishbosheth by two of his cavalry leaders. They sneak into his house while he's asleep, while he's taking a nap, and they chop his head off. Then they grab the head and they bring it to David and they're like, look what we did, David. We brought you the kingdom, right? And David's like, you are a wicked fool and so you are going to die. And so he has them executed, but he does so pretty graphically himself. He chops their hands off, he chops their feet off, and then he hangs them up to rot away in the wind. Not David's best moment either. Again, faithfulness on David's part, but also a lot of folly, also a lot of foolishness. But it doesn't derail God. None of this does. And God doesn't work just through perfect people. And praise the Lord, because then you have nobody to work with. Because none of us are perfect. Not one. Romans 3 says, no, not one. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And so don't overly idolize heroes in the Bible. They are sinners just like you and me. And don't idolize preachers you hear on TV. Amazing, awesome people, just like these heroes, but they're still sinners. Idolize one person. His name's Jesus. He is perfect. Worship him. Finally, we get to chapter 5 and the crowning of David. We'll read this together. Chapter 5, verse 1, just five verses, page 257. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. Before Saul started chasing him, David was the hero of Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people. Just like Jesus is the shepherd. And you shall be prince over Israel, just like Jesus. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron. Again, city of Abraham, all this is happening in God's providence. Made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over Israel and Judah 33 years. And so here's what I want us to see out of all this it happened. David became the king. Like, despite everything, God's promise happened. Now, all we've seen through this whole section are people warring against and resisting the kingdom. Abner did. David even did. Joab did. The assassins did. Yet for all of that, for all the opposition, all the scheming, all the folly, God's promise came to pass anyway. And so, number one, this morning in your notes, God's plan can't be thwarted. It just can't. And in the midst of our lives, it's important to to remember some of these crazy works of God in chapters 2 through 5. Because sometimes nothing looks so unlikely and remote to us as the day when the kingdom will come in its fullness. But it will come. Because God's plan, his kingdom, can't be thwarted. It can't be stopped. He has decreed to Jesus that no Abner, no Joab, no assassins, no mayor, no senator, no president, no United Nations, no nothing will ever be able to stop him. And so all of God's promises, all of them are certain. No matter how much resistance comes against him. The gates of Hell will not prevail against the church. Period. And we may all die. Martyrs. Persecuted like so many of our brothers and sisters around the world do. Daily. But it will not prevail. God's kingdom will go forth. His kingdom will come. Christ will return And no pain, no sorrow, no sin, no death, all things made new will happen. Nothing can derail him. Nothing. Not even madness and sin and scheming and wrongheadedness. It can't. And on the one hand for us, that's a little bit hard to hear. But it's also freeing. Because it means that you, you and I can't mess it up. And this doesn't mean we just go and do whatever we want. Because it's going to happen. No, 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 no. That's kind of antinomianism. And that's not Christian. But it does mean you can't mess it up. And so you think about those moments in your life. Think about them for a minute. I'll think about them as well. And we remember those times. And we've done something like, I've, I've done it now. I've messed it up. I've blown it. God had a plan for me. And now because of what I've done, it is over. I've blown it. I've ruined it. I've messed it all up. And there may be aspects, depending upon your circumstances, of things that that you won't get back. There may be aspects of your life that have been forfeited. That that may be true. There are real and concrete consequences for our actions. But even in the midst of that, God's will can't be thwarted. It just can't. It was true in David's life. He's got all kinds of craziness and messed up stuff. And he'll have more. We'll get into it in a couple of weeks. But he doesn't thwart God's plan. It's not true in David's life. And it's not true in your life or my life either. And so that's why number two is very similar to number one. But we just put a little bit more on it. And it's God's plan cannot be thwarted even when we blow it. So number one, God's plan cannot be thwarted. Number two, God's plan cannot be thwarted even when we blow it. Now try as you might, you just can't. Abner tried, ish tried, even David tried, but you can't thwart it. And again, it's not really fun to admit such finiteness and lack of control on our part. But again, it's also freeing. Because you can't, it's not all on you. It's not all resting on your shoulders. God exists and He's real and He's at work and He's active in each one of our lives. And so you pray, you trust, you do all that you can do. You put it out there, you go for it, and then you just see what happens. Because God's in control. And who knows what He might do? Who knows how He might work? Even in the things that we might at first chalk up as failures as a mistake things that we would chalk up that was a mistake for this person and so like i've got a lot of friends that i went to seminary with in north carolina and they went to seminary and and they uh they didn't finish they never finished so they went to seminary to do this but they didn't finish well is that a mistake did they miss god's calling Well, what if God's calling on them to go there was never for them to finish? They just didn't know that. But he took them there for a reason that that we don't get. And we just chalk it up as failure. And was it failure? Maybe. But maybe not. We're finite. We can't see that. Or maybe you try something. You try a new job. You try a new business and it goes bad as the world would define it. Is that a mistake? Maybe. Is that a failure? Maybe. But maybe not. Maybe God puts you in that circumstance and in that position for a reason to teach you something. Even you might not be able to now look back on and articulate what he taught you, but it's something that he has sunk into you and he's going to keep developing and flourishing until you do see it or you just see it live out in your life. You don't know what he's going to do. We're finite. I've been in ministry for almost a decade now. Most of you know my first ministry experience lasted six weeks. Then I was forced out. I moved my family 500 miles for that. I have two small kids, family of four at the time. One was three, one was 11 months. We moved with everything we had, 500 miles to this, and it goes bad. Was it a mistake? Maybe, but maybe not. Maybe behind the scenes, God was doing something, never authoring sin, never being happy with sin of others or my own, right? Never authoring sin, but maybe through mess and through madness, he's working things or maybe he just works good out of the nonsense that we do. Because this is what he turns things around. There's a great biblical word called redemption. It's where Jesus redeems things, obviously us. He redeems us, he saves us, he rescues us. From the wrath of God that we deserve because of his life and his death and his resurrection. But he's in the redeeming business of all kinds of things. He redeems marriages, he redeems jobs, he redeems broken relationships, he redeems bad situations. That's what he does. He works in the midst of things, even when we may not realize it. And so ultimately, no one can thwart God's will or plan. Not your sin, not other people's sin, not what you do, not what's been done to you, not injustice. Not wickedness, not evil. God wins. Always. We may not see the battles and how it's playing out, but he wins. It's impossible for him to lose. Impossible. And these things that I talked about, I mean, they're legit sin and deception and scheming and wickedness and injustice and evil. They are in the world and they are rampant and God is not the author of them. In fact, he has wrath against them, anger, heartbreak. He will bring justice on them. But he can work through them because he's bigger than them. Sin's not bigger than God. It doesn't control him. Injustice isn't bigger than God. It doesn't control him. God is bigger than all things. And he can work through all things and in all things for his glory. God is bigger than sin. He's bigger than evil. He's bigger than we are. He's bigger than Satan. He's bigger than demons. And that's why in the end, God will work it out for the good of those who are called and who love Christ Jesus. He's over that stuff. He's bigger than that stuff. And so we can pray with confidence because he's sovereign. He's powerful. He can act. He can save. Dear Lord, please save. He can do that. But friends, he's also good and kind. And so the two things, kind of as we walk out of here, as we're preparing to close that, I want you to walk out, kind of hang on to, two key attributes Beyond the points that I gave you, two key attributes of God and His rule that I want you to hang on to are these. First of all, He is sovereign always and forever, and He is good always and forever. Because if you drift too far to one of those and you accept his goodness but reject his absolute sovereignty, then you've got an impotent goody two-shoes with squishy dishy puppy love who sprinkles love dust on other people. And he acts a lot like the Care Bears from Care-A-Lot, but he's impotent to do anything. But if you drift to the other side and it's just all about sovereignty and you, you know, reject his goodness you're not sure about him actually being good or for you, then you've got a very, very scary, all-powerful dictator that can't be trusted. And there's nothing you can do about it. But if you hold on to both of these tightly, you have the God of the Bible who's all-powerful and can accomplish anything and who's all-good. And so he can be trusted. You can trust that he's working for your good. Even in the worst of times. Even in the midst of our dysfunctional, crazy lives. Just as we've seen in chapters 2 through 5. Because as we sang a little bit earlier. Faithful forever. Perfect in love. He is sovereign over us. What the enemy means for evil. You turn it for our good you turn it for our good and for your glory. Let's pray. Father, you are good and kind and gracious and merciful. And you are powerful and strong. And you are a strong tower And we can run to you and be safe. We can hide in the shadow of your wings. And we know that you've created all things just by speaking words. You didn't have to create, but you did. Because you wanted to. Because you're sovereign. And Father, though we have rebelled against you, just as Adam and Eve did, though we have rejected you, you have made a way for us to be redeemed, for us to be reconciled, for us to be made right with you. And it's not on the basis of anything we've done. But on the basis of what Christ did for us. He lived the perfect life we didn't. He died the death we should have. And he rose again to validate it all and conquer death and sin. And so, Father, now as we come to pause, to remember the sacrifice that you made, Jesus, Help us to come with repentant hearts, examining our own lives before we partake. Help us to come, Father, and if we have a sin against someone in this room, that we would work to make that right. That unity would prevail. And that we would once again be just paused in our lives with thankfulness at the undeserved gift of grace you've given us. That you've given to all those who have repented and believed the forgiveness of our sins and the promise of eternal life with you forever. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.